All right, we're going to get started tonight. It's a joy to see you out here. Uh, if you please turn your Bible to Luke chapter 21. As we continue through our six-part study of principles on prayer from the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, we are in section 5 tonight, which is principles on prayer from the uh, Passion Week of Jesus. We're going to be looking at seven scenes from the final week of Jesus' life before his death on the cross and subsequent resurrection, and we're going to see how prayer played a pivotal role uh, in Jesus' activities and teachings during the most climactic moment of his earthly life. Tonight we're going to be looking at a discussion that Jesus had on Tuesday evening on the slopes of the Mount of Olives with his disciples concerning his second coming and how we as Jesus' followers ought to live in light of his return. And there is a lot that could and should and will be said on this passage at another date. Um, But what I want you to see tonight is that prayer is to be central in preparing for our Lord's return. And so uh, that's what we're going to see in verses 34 through 36 tonight. We must keep prayer's preparedness. Uh, But Before we join Jesus on the slopes of the Mount of Olives tonight in his discussion with his followers, uh, let's ask the Lord to richly bless our time in his word tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the great privilege we have uh, to come before you tonight and to appeal uh, on the merits of Christ, uh, grace and mercy to help us in our time of need this evening. Father, we have a great need, and that is to hear from you. We have a great need to understand your truth. We have a great need to be changed in our hearts and changed in our lives to become more close followers of your Son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, we pray that you would give us that grace this evening. We pray that you would help us to understand your truth. And we pray that we might be able to change in light of it and enter into the rest of this week uh, as people of prayer more faithfully than how we began this week. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me paint the picture for you this evening. If you have Luke 21, you can go ahead and look at some verses as I'm referencing them. It's Tuesday evening, the night before Christ dies on the cross. Jesus and his disciples leave the temple for the last recorded time. And as they're walking out through the temple gates and out of Jerusalem, Jesus' disciples, in verse 5, begin talking about how beautiful the temple looked. And it was beautiful. It had white walls and they were noticing them. The polished marble pillars, the ornate golden trim. Um, They might have been reflecting about how beautiful it looked in the light of the setting sun. Many historians considered uh, the uh, Herodian temple to have been one of the wonders of the ancient world. Well, Jesus overhears them talking and in verse 6 tells them just like he did back in chapter 13 and chapter 19, it's all coming down. And it did. In 70, under, uh, 70 AD, under General Titus, the Romans sacked the city and they raised the temple to the ground, not leaving one stone on another. Why? Well, we already kind of saw it the last time we were in Luke. It's because God no longer had a purpose for that temple. Uh, Israel had abandoned its purpose to be a house of prayer for all people. And not only that, but Christ was about to fulfill the temple's sacrifices by offering up on Friday his own perfect life to atone for the sins of his people. So, as his disciples are in awe of the temple's earthly magnificence, Jesus reminds them it is eternally insignificant at this point. It's all coming down. To which the disciples, if you're reading carefully, to which the disciples curiously reply, 
in verse 7, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign that these things are about to take place? Isn't that interesting? Notice how they're almost eager to see this event happen. Excited almost, right? What's, when is it going to happen? And what will be the indication? What's going to be the divine sign that is about to happen? Now you might be wondering, why in the world would Jews be excited to know the time in which their own capital city and the temple would be raised? The answer is because in their minds, according to the book of Zechariah, the destruction of Jerusalem happens right before the inauguration of God's kingdom when the Messiah comes down, puts his foot on the Mount of Olives, and it splits open. And so they're okay with the concept of judgment because in their minds... Restoration in the new age occurs right after that judgment. So they're saying to to Jesus, Oh, you're talking about Zechariah. Okay, this is great. So when? What will be the sign that the kingdom, the eschaton, the final age is about to become and be inaugurated and arrive? To which Jesus says, basically in verse 9, and again I'm trying to go through this quickly, (laughs) which is probably going to get me in trouble. He basically says, Whoa, slow down. I'm not talking about the final destruction that brings in the Messiah's kingdom. Jesus is saying when I'm talking about that, end of verse 9, there are some things that must take place first. He says the end will not be at once. So God does everything decently in order. We know this from the rest of Scripture. And there are birth pangs, Jesus says elsewhere. There are signs. There is a process that must take place before the end, before the great and final day of the Lord comes. Before that moment that the Jews were anticipating and that the disciples were asking about would come. Jesus mentions familiar things in verse 10. He says, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And here we know that the disciples and Jesus are not talking about 70 AD, I would contend, because at the end of verse 11 it says, and there will be terrors and great signs in the heavens. That did not happen in 70 A.D., but that is exactly what's described in Revelation chapter 6, particularly verses 12 through 14, where it says there was a great earthquake and the sun became as black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. That's what I'd call terror. That's what I would call great signs from heaven. And that hasn't happened yet. So when the end comes, Jesus reminds them, this is what you're going to see. It'll be marked by all these things. But Jesus says in verse 12, but before all of this, right? So before the end of the age comes, Jesus tells them, they will lay their hands on you believers in the church age, and persecute you, believers in the church age, delivering you, delivering, up, uh, delivering you up, believers in the church age, to synagogues and prisons, and you, believers in the church age, will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Now that, what does that sound like? Sounds a lot like the book of Acts when you think about it, right? And what the apostles went through, and not just the apostles, but frankly, what has been the common experience of all the followers of Christ throughout this church age that we're living in. This will be your opportunity, verse 13, believers in the church age, to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds, believers in the church age, not to meditate 
beforehand how to answer. Verse 15, For I will give you, believers in the church age, a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. And I wish I could give all these examples that are flooding my mind about reformers. And Anyway, verse 16, You, believers in the church age, will be delivered up by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. Verse 17, You, believers in the church age, will be hated all for my name's sake. Verse 18, But not a hair of your head will perish. Verse 19, By your endurance, you, believers in the church age, will gain your lives. Verse 20, But when you, believers in the tribulation, that's not what I said, but you, believers in the church age, See Jerusalem surrounded by armies? Then know that its desolation has come near. Verse 22, what is he talking about? The days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. End of verse 24, when the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. You can tell, I'm trying to go really fast. I have a whole sermon here I'd really like to preach. But I'm not going to. But the disciples are asking here, what is the sign that all of these things, the end, the desolation of Jerusalem, the days of vengeance to fulfill all things, what is the sign... That will be given that all of these things, the end times, everything that Jesus mentions in verses 25 through 27, what are the signs that all of these things are about to take place? And Jesus says, you know all these things are about to take place when at the end of the times of the Gentiles you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. When these things, verse 28, Jesus says, begins to take place, when you start seeing these prophecies falling into place, Jesus says, straighten up. Raise your heads, believers in the church age, because your redemption is drawing near. As verse 31 says, the kingdom of God is near. How near? Verse 32, truly I say to you, this generation, and I interpret that as these things, uh, that sees these things begin to take place, these prophecies that start falling into place, this generation will not pass away uh, until all has taken place. How do we know? Verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, I went through all of that, and I know there's other interpretations, but hey, I'm just giving you mine as quickly as possible tonight. Uh, I wanted to go through all of that because I wanted you to feel the weight of what Jesus teaches in this moment. Uh, The thrill, the exaltation, the uh, exhilaration, the awe and reverence that comes when we remember, as Romans 13, 11 through 12 says, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. For the night is far gone, and the day is at hand. That remembrance stirs our souls. Therefore, we have to ask ourselves, how are we to live in light of Christ's coming? Three ways that Jesus mentions here in this passage. First, by staying watchful through prayer. Second, by staying burdened through prayer. And then third, by staying strong through prayer. Prayer is central to making sure we live appropriately until our Lord returns. So first, Jesus says in verse 34 that we ought to stay watchful. How? Through prayer. Verse 34, Jesus says, But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. So here Jesus tells us that there is something that we have to keep guard against until the day of his return. Jesus is saying here there is a supreme threat to our spiritual lives that we must maintain eternal vigilance against. So what is that threat? 
What is that threat that surpasses even the dangers of spiritual deception, even the dangers of worldwide chaos, and even the dangers of religious persecution that Jesus has already mentioned previously that we will experience during this age? What is the supreme danger that is the greatest threat to our spiritual lives? Answer, ourselves. Ourselves. Jesus says, watch who? Yourselves. I cannot think of a more sobering reality. There have been more souls shipwrecked by their own sinful desires than have been destroyed by false teachers, social corruption, or religious persecution. There has been more destruction done to the cause of Christ and the advancement of the gospel in our world and in our communities by believers indulging in sin than any false teacher, Supreme Court ruling, or religious persecution could ever hope to accomplish. Our greatest enemy is ourselves. As Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7, there is this spiritual battle going on within us, within our redeemed spirit and our unredeemed flesh. And he writes, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the battle that Jesus is drawing our attention to here in this command. Yes, in this world we will have trouble. We will experience various dangers and testings in increasing intensity. I think these last few years have been a reminder of that for us as Christians, but all of those things pale in comparison to the danger that we are to ourselves. And so Jesus says, watch yourselves. Why? For what purpose? Lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation. That is the idea of the nausea that was created back then when pagans would partake in too much food and drink and they would get sick to their stomachs, throw up, eat some more. Jesus is talking, not that he's saying that we would do that, hopefully you don't, but he's talking about the idea of, of overindulging in the pleasures of comfort. And he says, your heart can get weighed down by just comfort and complacency and ease and enjoyment of the things of this life. He says, watch out that you don't get weighed down by those things. Watch out that you don't get weighed down by drunkenness. Now we think that's in terms of wine, but Jesus is talking about just those infatuating addictions that you can just have in life. You say, I have to have it. It doesn't have to be drugs. It can be coffee. For me, it can be Mountain Dew. Right? It could be anything that you become dominated by that you just have to have. He says, watch out for those things that hold you back from freely serving God because you're weighed down, tied down to have to have this thing. He says, make sure that your hearts aren't weighed down with dissipation, with drunkenness. And he also says, with the cares of this world. I mean, just a great broad summary of everything, right? Those things perhaps mentioned in Luke 8.14 that choke out the impact of God's Word in our lives. I'd be living for God. I'd be reading His Bible more. I'd be be praying more. But I just got all these things I've got to do. Jesus says, then cut those things off. Don't let your life be weighed down even with good things. If we don't watch ourselves, Jesus warns, we'll start taking in too much of this life, filling ourselves with it and filling ourselves with it and filling ourselves with it. 
And it'll weigh us down spiritually. It'll make you feel spiritually dissatisfied, dominated, distracted. And I see this in my own life, right? I'm sure you do as well. When I start grumbling, and I start complaining, when I start falling into a pattern of sin, when I start getting pulled in a thousand different directions and start getting pulled apart by a thousand different anxieties, I can always trace it back to the fact that I have been taking in far too much of this world and taking in far too little of the things of Christ. Your greatest enemy, believer, is yourself. So watch yourselves lest you be weighed down. Stay watchful. And you say, well, how do we do that? I mean, obviously you need to be taking in the things of Christ. Read your Bible. But I would remind you of what Jesus says in the Garden of Gethsemane to His disciples, the same disciples that were there on the slopes. Jesus taught later there in Matthew 26, 41, watch and pray so that you may not enter into temptation the spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak in other words the only way that we can be that we can stay spiritually watchful against distractions deceptions and sin until Christ's coming is by remaining watchful spiritually in prayer in prayer you might sit there and wake up some morning and say i don't need to pray today jesus says the flesh is weak the flesh is weak So stay watchful through prayer. Second, stay burdened through prayer. Look at verse 35. Jesus reminds us here at the end of the Olivet Discourse, He says in verse 35, for it, that is that day, right, that can come upon you like a trap, it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. All right, God's final day of judgment is universal. There is not one person who can avoid it. Everyone will have to stand before God someday and those who are outside of Christ will experience terrifying judgment. Therefore, knowing this, how should we respond as Christians? Oh, by dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. No. No. It's by being burdened. Burdened for those souls. 2 Corinthians 5.11 says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, be reconciled to God. We need to keep our souls burdened. If Christ is coming soon, and He is, we must remain burdened in our souls for those to whom this day will come upon. So I do have the question, when's the last time first you've shared the Gospel with somebody? Shared the saving truths of Christ. Second, kind of related to this maybe, when's the last time you've invited someone to church? Have no doubt, whoever does not commit their lives to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior will not enter into heaven, but rather into condemnation. So who do you know that is lost? Not who is moral and immoral. Who has not put their faith in Jesus Christ for the salvation of their souls? Who do you know that's lost, that's drifting away, that's being weighed down? A family member? Co-worker? Friend? Neighbor? I want to encourage you, God has put you into their lives for a reason. Not anyone else. Don't look around and wonder why nobody else in this church is reaching that person. (laughs) Ask yourself why you aren't. God gave you that relationship to share Jesus Christ with them. So take a step of faith. This is your pastor encouraging you. Take a step of faith. Talk to them about the Lord. 
Invite them to church. Encourage them to follow you as you follow Christ. Open the Bible. Go through the Gospel of John with them. Show them Jesus. And most importantly of all, pray for them. You know, you might be sitting here thinking tonight, well, I just don't feel burdened for the lost. Like I know I should. I mean, yeah, I know these unsaved people, but it doesn't really bother me. Well, that's why I would encourage you to pray for them. To pray for them. I guarantee you that if you pray for the individual names of those that you know are lost, and you consider that the final day of judgment will come upon all who dwell in the face of the earth, even the person you're praying for, God will work in your heart, and He will burden you for their souls. So stay burdened through prayer. How do we live in light of Christ's return? Stay watchful. We do that through prayer. Stay burdened. We do that through prayer. And then finally, stay strong through prayer in verse 36. It says, but stay awake at all times, Jesus says, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Now the only way that you can escape all of these things that are going to take place and the only way you can stand before the Son of Man as someone approved by God is how? It is to trust in Jesus Christ. To have faith in Him. And so Jesus is saying, don't let your faith fall asleep, right? You need to stay awake at all times, praying to God that he may give you the strength needed to trust him at all times through all the experiences and all the troubles and all the trials of life. So this is how we're to live our lives in prayer for strength. Stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength. We are weak people. We've already seen this in our study of prayer in the Gospel of Luke, right? We are like sheep in the midst of wolves. We are pilgrims walking through a foreign land. We're surrounded by sins within and by fears without. And the only way we will endure to the end is if we are praying, God, give me strength. In the midst of deceptions, chaos, and hardship, give me strength. Give me strength to endure. Give me faith to believe. Give me hope to persevere. If we will live rightly until Christ's return, then we must pray and know the desperation of prayer, lest we fall asleep, lest we drift away, lest we become weighed down, and that day catch us unawares. As 1 John 2.28 says, Little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. That will only happen if we keep watchful, if we keep burdened, and if we keep strong. The only way that happens is by God's grace and and prayer. And so that's the end of Jesus' Olivet Discourse, and the lesson is clear. Jesus is coming again. You can bet your life on it. Because though heaven and earth will pass away, his words will never pass away. And in light of that, in light of the truthfulness of God's word and the nearness of Christ's return, where are you investing your time, believer? It's kind of coming back right back to Sunday morning, right? Are you giving your life to the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you attempting great things for him? Are you getting weighed down by the priorities and the distractions and the intoxications of this world? See, we must remain watchful. We must remain burdened. We must remain strong. We must remain prepared for Christ's return. And therefore, we must keep praying and keep prayers preparedness. So that's the lesson that we see right at the very end of Jesus' Olivet Discourse. Keep prayers preparedness.